Hello, I'm Rachel Webb, and I'm the host of the brand new podcast, She Leads Change, a space to explore ideas around affecting change, stepping into our power, leading from within, and all the challenges that we face along the way. In this episode, we'll be focusing on purpose and seeding our best intentions for the year ahead. We'll be continuing this exploration of purpose in this month's Lead More program. If you haven't signed up already, you can head over to sheleadschange.org for an overview of what will be covered in the course and details on how to book. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guests. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Georgi Gallic, an innovation designer, design strategist and environmental advocate about the different areas in her life in which she finds purpose. We'll also be hearing from expert Tom Rippin, CEO of On Purpose, a multinational social enterprise that helps people and organisations find their purpose. This includes developing practical ways more intelligently to integrate commercial, social and environmental ways of working. Tom is going to tell us a little bit about what purpose means for him and his organisation. So hello, Tom. Welcome to the first ever She Leads Change podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to speak to me. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm, I'm very honoured to be the first guest you've got. Well, first of all, I think that we should say that although you have very graciously agreed to come onto the podcast today, you won't be speaking at the Lead More Masterclass in January because of other work commitments. So I suppose that means I'm going to have to try and extract as much wisdom as I can from you over the course of our conversation. So let's just jump right in. Can you tell me a little bit about what purpose means for you? Sure. Purpose for me really ultimately, I think, comes down to making a contribution in the world. You know, it's about the effect that you have on what is beyond yourself. Um, and that's maybe a slightly odd term to use, um, but it comes from a kind of school of thought by Viktor Frankl, who was a, an Austrian psychiatrist and uh, also a survivor of the concentration camps. He founded a school of psychology called logotherapy, which is essentially the therapy of meaning or the therapy of purpose. Uh, and based a lot of his thinking on his experience in the camps when he realised that those people who were more likely to survive were those people who appeared to manage to have a, a greater meaning or a greater purpose in their lives for which to live, I guess. And he then associated this, this purpose and this meaning with a term that he called self-transcendence. Uh, which sounds a bit technical, but it's basically about being able to go beyond yourself. It's about having uh, a goal or an objective or trying to make a contribution beyond yourself. That might be to a higher cause or a calling, or it may be just be to an, another person uh, you know, who you have a relationship with. And he contrasted this self-transcendence with what he calls self-actualization, which we might translate as trying to fulfill your potential or possibly maximizing your well-being or, or more colloquially maybe your happiness and the interesting thing is actually that Frankl says that trying to pursue happiness is actually an oxymoron because he says that strangely you can only achieve this happiness this well-being this self-actualization by self-transcending so it is almost a, a byproduct to having this kind of bigger cause this bigger idea that you work towards by having that, you can then actually also achieve happiness, well-being, whatever we want to call it. Thank you for that. Now I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what purpose isn't. I think that people try and correlate purpose with a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and to my mind, what that ends up doing is that they're almost trying to justify purpose. So they will say things like, well, purposeful companies have 
more loyal employees. Purposeful companies grow faster or are more profitable. And that, to me, betrays a kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of what purpose is about, because purpose is not something that you do in order to achieve something else. It's not something that you do in order to make your employees uh, you know, more loyal. It is, by its very definition, the end which you are trying to achieve. It's what you're trying to bring about. And so I worry when I see a lot of these kind of conversations happening around the justification of purpose and having to justify it in terms of what is, I think, uh, an outdated concept of essentially trying to maximise our profits. Thinking about what you just said there about purpose being an end point, I'd like to talk about that a little bit because we have also spoken about purpose as something that's always evolving. Very much so. I I often see in the people who are going through our on-purpose programmes and also through other people that I meet, I I see what I can sometimes describe a little bit as a, as a paralysis of people trying to you know discover their purpose and people put a lot of pressure on themselves uh, by thinking that you know purpose is something that you discover once and for all you know whether that is for yourself or maybe also for your organisation and that it's somehow it's immutable and it's it's not going to change whereas Actually, I don't think that's a very healthy way of thinking about it because I think purpose evolves and has to evolve you know, uh, in our lives, for example, as we go through different life stages, as, as we find a, a long-term relationship, maybe as we start a family, etc., etc. You know, our purposes change and evolve. There is often, obviously a certain constancy, so it's not changing every, every kind of few months or every year, but I don't think it's static. And I sometimes compare that a little bit to kind of climbing or hiking up a mountain. You know, occasionally you, you might be walking up a mountain and, well, very occasionally you might realise that you're actually walking up the wrong mountain. <laughs> Maybe you need to go down and start start climbing that mountain over there, which, which for whatever reason looks like a better idea. But sometimes you'll also be walking up a mountain and you realise that actually, you know, you've, you've chosen the wrong route and there's, a, there's an easier way up. But what can actually also very often happen, I think, and this is, a, this is an experience I have very often when out walking, and you can see a peak in, in, in front of you, you're kind of slogging up that trail out of breath, and you're kind of almost there, and, and then you realise, you know, just beyond the kind of peak that you can see, you can suddenly see come into view the second peak, and you realise that what you've been aiming for is not actually the main peak of the mountain, and that there's actually another one to be climbed behind, which so far has been hidden to you. But I think that's often what happens with our purposes. You know, we aim for something, we, we've, we've figured out as best as we can what it is, we set off in a direction, as we're climbing up that hill, you know, our perspective changes, uh, and we get different views, and we realise that actually... Maybe my purpose is, is just a little bit further along there. It's a little bit higher up this mountain chain. So purpose for me is not something that is static. It's not something that you uncover once and for all. It is something that, yes, we need to obviously try and uncover, but that should actually be a fun experience without too much pressure because ultimately it always needs to be the purpose that's going to serve us for now and for a certain amount of time, but we need to be open to the fact that it's going to develop and evolve as well. Yeah, I mean, I love that answer that you gave and that analogy about the mountains. And I think you know there's something really important about holding purpose with a sense of gentleness. And maybe that is a kind of nod to that feeling of not putting pressure on yourself. Because as you say, it's as courageous sometimes to get off the mountain when it's not the right one for you as it is to stay on and try and make it to the top. 
And I'm also so glad that you've spoken about this idea of evolving purpose and especially it resonates with me in terms of having a family because I think before I had my daughter, I definitely felt quite lost with regard to purpose. And then suddenly you have a kid and that purpose kind of hits you like a ton of bricks, I think. But now she's she's a bit older, she's a toddler and, you know, I'm becoming more and more useless to her. So I find myself in this position of thinking, okay, what's next? And that doesn't mean that my purpose as a mother um, has gone away. That's still my overarching purpose. But it just means that I'm starting to see that there are other peaks to explore. And I think that often as well, we have to kind of override feelings of gratitude in order to find purpose, because sometimes we're sort of conditioned to feel like I've got this amazing job, this wonderful family, I've got a a lovely house and I should feel content with my purpose. Whereas actually you could potentially have all those things and still be searching for something higher than yourself. And that note sort of brings me on to my next question, which is, can you tell me a little bit about your own journey to purpose? I would probably go back to my time when I was a management consultant and I worked for a company called McKinsey and I was thinking of of leaving management consultancy. I'd always gone into management consultancy thinking that it would probably not be a a very long-term thing for me. But I was very much trying to, although I maybe wouldn't have put it in these terms at the time, trying to discover my purpose in inverted commas with a capital P trying to figure out, you know, what was I going to spend the rest of my career doing? You know, did I want to go into something to do with healthcare? Was it international development? And I think I, like these people that I mentioned earlier, was was quite paralysed by this, what felt like this, this very big choice that I had to make. And um, one of the best pieces of advice I actually I received at the time was you don't need to try and decide and work out what you're going to do for the rest of the career, your career. You know, that's not necessary at this point. Actually, all you need to do is to figure out what do you think is going to be exciting enough for you to spend the next two to three years of your of your career doing. And if you can figure that out, then that's actually plenty. Uh, and if those two to three years go really well and you enjoy it, then you'll carry on doing that and evolving within that. If not, you know, you'll figure out something else beyond that and that's fine too. And I think sometimes we get hung up on, you know, but I can't chop and change. But actually, you know, you can always tell a story as to why change has happened and so on. So that to me was actually very liberating, I guess, uh, to, to kind of be freed from that kind of pressure I felt of having to figure out what the rest of my career was going to be about. And the second piece of advice was that I should go and hang out with some people who are doing interesting things that, you know, sometimes you can't always discover intellectually by writing lists of pros and cons you know what do you want to do sometimes it's just a more experiential thing and you have to go and you know you have to go and see what people are doing you have to experience what kind of work happens see an organization from the inside and whether that's just going to events and and talking to people at networking events whether that's doing if you can do a little volunteering project for something you know you will actually very quickly discover Uh, what is exciting to you and what you want more of and what maybe looked exciting but when you got into it maybe wasn't quite for you after all and yeah long story short I then I then left McKinsey and, and, and had this idea of wanting to kind of work on things that were more intelligently integrating social and commercial environmental and commercial ways of working because I thought that was a really important area uh, and, and two or three years down the line then uh, set up on purpose which in turn you know tries to develop people that that can 
do that precisely. I think that's brilliant advice because I think often a lot of people will put a lot of pressure on themselves to think about you know the five-year plan or 10-year plan so just breaking it down into that bite size one to two years feels a lot more manageable and you know on that note let's just touch on Covid a little bit and the impact of big big changes that have been happening over the last year. I think it's been so chaotic for everyone and most people have been navigating a big shift in considering priorities, what's important to them and and also having a lot of time to reflect and I'm sure feelings of purpose will have been called into question as well. So what's your advice for navigating crisis when everything gets turned upside down and is it a case of again maybe the one to two year plan then goes out the window and instead we should just be thinking about the next six months or the next three months? Yeah, and, I, and that's obviously a, an absolutely okay thing to do. You know, in, in times of crisis, you know, sometimes your, your time horizon uh, shrinks and has to shrink and should shrink. And you need to look after yourself, look after those who are closest to you or also maybe your, your organisation. We also touched upon previously, didn't we, the, the kind of idea of what happens maybe if, if your purpose was very bound up in your job and your job was maybe no longer there. As, as a consequence of this crisis. That's an interesting one to me because that's where I would encourage people to think about if you very much identified your purpose as being bound, wound up in your job, what was it about your job? What was it about your organisation that was that contribution that you were making? You know, And what were you making a contribution to? And, you know, what skills were you using to make that contribution? Consequently, you know, therefore, well, you know, what other ways are there of making that contribution? What other ways are there of achieving my purpose and using my skills? Um, because ultimately, I would hope that people's purpose goes a little bit beyond where your job kind of finishes and that your purpose is a little bit bigger than that. So if your job disappears, actually, your purpose is still there. And maybe it's then just a matter of trying to find a different route up the same mountain. Or maybe it could also be an opportunity to think about, well, am I really climbing the right mountain? Um, or is there a different one that I might always have wondered about? Uh, and that if I did climb, would, you know, would provide me with an alternative purpose. OK, and last of all, even though you've already given us so much to think about, do you have any nuggets of wisdom for our listeners who are gearing up for the Lead More session this month? Is there anything that we should be or could be asking ourselves with regard to finding purpose? The first few questions are, what can I get really enthusiastic about over the next two to three years? What really inspires me? Related to that, you know, where can I kind of try and experience this a little bit? And then what makes me angry? <laughs> Actually, sometimes it doesn't have to be something that inspires you positively. Sometimes it can be something that you are quite cross about and you want to, do, you know, you want to make a difference to, you want to change. And for some people, that can be quite a powerful question as well. But where I'll end is, I think, with these, with these three questions, and I think they're, they're a great starting point for what you're asking. You know, what are your deepest desires? What do you really truly want to achieve? Secondly, what are your true talents? What do you want to bring to the world and what are you good at? And thirdly, what are the responsibilities that you, through your life, carry with you who and what are you responsible for and do you need to build into your purpose as well amazing what an amazing place to end <laughs> tom thank you so much for talking to me today it's been an absolute pleasure and you've given me lots and lots of food for thought for taking into 2021 
Next up, I'll be speaking to Georgi Gallick, who, along with being in the process of finishing a PhD in Innovation Design Engineering at the Royal College of Art in London, is working as a lead advisor of the city's programme at Design Council. Georgi, I think I could dedicate a whole podcast just listening to your accomplishments. Alongside your work with the Design Council and studying, you've also got countless experience as a curator, lecturer, presenting panels and workshops and speaking at industry events. So thank you so much for finding time to come and speak to me today. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and to give anyone listening a bit of background, Georgi and I were in the same cohort in the 2020 She Leads Change programme, which is where we met and where I first heard you share a particularly challenging chapter from your life story and how you found your way out of it through your focus on your research and work. So first of all, can you tell me where you are right now? Yeah, at the moment, I'm based in London, in Highgate. I came to London a little bit more than eight years ago, and I used to live in New York, and before that in Montreal, and I'm originally from Budapest, Hungary. And how about your headspace? Where is that at right now? I'm quite excited about the new year. I think every one of us after 2020. So I'm looking forward to 2021 and see I can move forward with my journey, both career-wise and in relationship-wise as well. Yeah, I mean, for context, we're recording this on the 2nd of January. So I think a time that is rich with possibility. And I'm really excited about our conversation today. So first of all, can you give me a brief overview of what you do and your PhD? Yes. So as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm working as the lead program manager of Design Council in London. And in my PhD that I recently passed and finished in September, I was studying at the Royal College of Art in Innovation Design Engineering. And I looked at how emerging technologies and AI agents could help increase people's agency in making meaningful action in terms of social and environmental or challenges we face individually as well as a collective. Wow, okay. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you. <laughs> Can you just talk a little bit more about that? I guess the main or key driver of my work is looking at how marginalised and vulnerable groups or people, families, are disproportionately impacted by pollution, by climate change, and I guess COVID as well. And that there is a huge asymmetry in who pollutes the planet. And I am very interested in finding different ways to addressing such complex challenges like climate change and understanding the current barriers to change, whether that's political, economic or individual barriers to change, as well as how then we can move forward uh, through a more just transition so that we would live in a, I guess, a more equal and, and fairer way in society. Is climate change and environment something that you've always been interested in? Yeah, so I, I guess I became an environmental activist when I was 21 and now I'm 38. So I spend a lot of time first just, I guess, as a hobby or main interest of what challenges we will face due to climate. And then this kind of interest became my, my full-time work. I started publishing and then now through my work in cities, uh, through Design Council, I'm trying to make sure that we create healthier and better environments for, for everyone I know that you've said in the past that your work gives you and has given you a sense of purpose and how you particularly felt this kind of sense of purpose during a particularly dark chapter in your life. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. 
So basically the dark period of my life started uh, when I guess the way that I, I grew up, I had an alcoholic dad and he was very critical of me and became quite aggressive. I don't think he was a bad person, but he definitely lost his mind <laughs> with alcoholism and then he died very young. And for all sorts of reasons, I guess my mom decided to stay in the marriage for too long, even if both my brother and I were struggling and in a way that resulted into I already entered into my marriage with the idea that I'm not good enough, that I always need to work hard to be loved, the question whether I deserve love in the first place. But in another way, because he was so critical of me, it allowed me to take more risk because you can't fall when you're already down. This is how I deny at 28 with no English and not so much money left Hungary so I could work on climate change without knowing any people in Montreal. In a way, I recognized the kind of the benefits of growing up this way, but also that led me to accept a, a relationship that was both like emotionally and physically abusive because that's what a relationship is and that's what love is. And I needed to recognize through a hard way to learn to love myself more, I guess. It sounds like you have a really deep understanding of yourself and, you know, your experiences. And, you know, it's, I think it's so hard, obviously, to connect those dots. And once you start connecting them, it shines such a light, doesn't it, on paths that you've gone down and the ripple effects that can start from such a young age and how they can follow you around. You know, in terms of where you're at now, do you feel like you have quite a good understanding about yourself and your experience and what you went through. I always have a fear in the back of my mind whether, you know, the narratives we are creating about ourselves or, or how, how much truth is in that. <laughs> I guess therapy was very helpful in, you know, learning to blame myself less for the things that, that happened to me. And also, I guess, instead of focusing on self-improvement, to just actually turn towards self-allowance, to just be with myself and, and who I am. And, you know, being able to look back on an experience that you've had or look back at yourself with tenderness instead of anger or frustration is really difficult. And it sounds like you were able to do that. I had a, a big challenge with, with rage and anger during my relationship with my ex. And that was a big work for me to actually, first of all, saying, OK, rage is not OK and my behaviour is not okay, but also then realizing that my behavior is a response and that it helps us recognize, our body helps us recognize that something is not okay. I totally understand what you mean. And it sounds like you have a really good sense of intuition. Yeah, so I guess the, my relationship with my body and intuition were the ones that in a way saved me and made me realize how bad and unhealthy my relationship was because actually there's a really brilliant podcast that I listened to while I was still with my ex. Um, it was on emotional abuse with Rima Zaman. That was the podcast that mentioned about how our body actually talks to us. And I often try to push down, my, but my body was like sending me all these, you know, clues that you just have to get out. But obviously... You also need to forgive yourself and understand the psychology of abuse that women often do, do not leave and what the reason is and what is the psychology and phys actually physical addiction to that abuse and the ways that your adrenaline levels work and so on. So 
it creates a lot of empathy and understanding towards other women when you go through something like this because you often think well this could never happen to me you know if you read up on it you realize that it happens to every third woman once in their lifetime so there are millions and millions of women hundreds of millions of women who experience this and that's why it's so important to raise awareness about this issue I mean, that was exactly going to be one of my questions to you about creating awareness. It's been really useful in reaching out to other people who unfortunately might be going through the same thing that you went through. So I wanted to ask you a bit about economic abuse. That's something that you mentioned before. What is it? And if you can talk a little bit about it, because I haven't heard the term before. So it'd be a great way to raise awareness about that. Economic abuse is when in a couple there is a coercive control basically creates in a relationship economic instability. And I guess in my case, it was building up debt on behalf of my ex who was unemployed for a very long time. And obviously, you're trying to help your partner the best way you can to stand up from depression, coming from feeling, you know, not part of society and self-isolation, being at home all the time. And you just work so hard to, to make improve the situation and help them to get out of it. And in my case, because I came from Hungary and I had not a lot of money starting out my life here abroad, I worked really hard in multiple jobs for years and years to provide for myself. I do not have a safety net, so I made sure that I had enough savings to be able to provide for myself and just to be independent as a woman. And I think that's really important that I can make my own choices and decisions and I'm not relying on anyone else's money. I saw that growing up with my mom, how much she enjoyed her work and how fulfilled the life she lived was. So for me, that saving wasn't just money, it was power and independence. And so when my husband got unemployed, I told him, listen, even if we are married, this is my savings and you have to understand that. And so he was unemployed for more than two years in a city like London. So we lived up everything I had and then he said, well, we could use your credit card of paying the rent and everything. And obviously me and my family, who are very wealthy, make sure that we'll be fine as soon as I get a job. And so he got a job, a full-time job after three and a half years. And then he moved out and started a new life. And since then, the last two years, I'm the one paying for my credit card debt that he accumulated on it. And he now says that he doesn't owe me any money and he actually paid the same amount as me and that I'm just taking revenge because he moved on with his life with a new partner and that he's happy. And that's often the case that abusers say you're lying about your experience because you're taking revenge. And often even your friends and family sometimes say the same <laughs> Thank you so much for talking about that. It must be so hard to revisit some of the things you've been speaking about. So thank you for that. Just going back to talking about the strong feeling of intuition you have combined with your sense of independence and passion for your work. How did it feel to revisit those strengths after the relationship ended? Yeah, so I guess two years ago when uh, my ex moved out, I ended up realizing that I have to start my life from scratch. I had to move in at 37 at a flat chair again <laughs> after actually working so hard for years and years on my career, moved into a kind of basement room and it doesn't matter, it was a nice room, but for me just this <laughs> kind of, it was even in the basement. So I was, you know, <laughs> sitting 
sitting on the floor, moved there. And the first night with all my boxes, totally on my own, realizing that everything that I had in my mind about family and becoming a mom, it just wasn't there anymore. It was a pretty big struggle and I just never felt such a deep emptiness and loneliness, I guess. It just felt easier to to kill myself than kind of restart everything from scratch. Friends were the ones and my mom who really saved me and my work. I had a friend, Indira, who just every morning in the first few weeks sent me a message saying, oh, look, there's a beautiful bird or send me a photo of a little puppy dog that I love. I love puppy dogs. <laughs> wow, what an amazing friend. <laughs> and she never asked like how I'm doing. She just kind of like sent all these like nice things in life. And, and people just showed up for me unexpectedly from everywhere, from my past and friends from other cities and my mom as well. And then I was thinking, okay, I only had one chapter left of my PhD and climate change is so important and it's so important and more and more people know about what kind of challenges we were facing very soon. And I felt like I put five years into my PhD and I do not let anyone to take that away from me. And so before I kill myself, I just finished the last chapter of my PhD and I was literally crying and I opened my computer and I started working on the last chapter. And three months later, when, um, when I finished, I, I felt a bit better. And since then, I'm trying to gather these little pieces of love, I guess, to heal <laughs> I really got a sense from you that you have a strong desire to support other people who could be experiencing what you went through. So do you feel like you have been able to draw a new purpose from your experience? Yeah, definitely. So I think for a long time, I felt, okay, what did I need to learn from this experience? And I think after this relationship, the only thing I felt that I'm dead inside and my mind being so severely poisoned that I do not see why this needed to happen and what purpose this served. (laughs) But then I realized that the things that I learned a lot is that I got so much help from other women and friends through the last two years. And even Shili's change, the empathy and love that people showed towards me when, when I shared my story was just incredible. And realizing that the women surround me are so capable and powerful and how often they play a role of being more submissive or called needy when they just have normal needs or the invisible labor that they do in their relationships so they would deserve the love of a man. And I'm not, you know... I'm not saying I'm not sounding like a man hater, <laughs> which is not which is not the case. I'm just saying that this experience made me realize how amazing women are, and that I just simply don't want other women to go through the same. I do understand what you mean about sort of a commonality with other women. Once you start having honest and open conversations with friends, or you know, even as you say on the She Leaves Change program, you realize that everybody, you know, whether it's something awful like abuse in a relationship or something that seems pretty commonplace like in your relationship you're the one to always make the dinner or do the school drop off there's Mm. always seems to be these imbalances that that you sort of mentioned and you know the more that once you start opening up about that and the more you start recognizing that almost all other women have got a similar story to tell I think it really does create that kind of sense of connection doesn't it and that you can draw strength from that connection 
Yeah. And I do not take it for granted, you know, that as a woman, all the things that I can do now and the independence and that I enjoy my work so much and that and the things that I'm doing of reading articles because I have the desire to be a good company for myself in the first place because I always think like how could I be a good company to other people or to a partner if I'm not for myself so that I managed to build a life that is so exciting and interesting for myself. I think that probably makes me or hopefully will make me a better parent as well and and a better girlfriend or wife or, or what have you. That's so lovely. I love hearing that about being good company for yourself. So where are you now on your recovery journey? I think I got to a point where I want to leave this story behind. I'm really working really hard to find again a balanced like I guess life and relationship with myself and others and I just you know want to move on and leave this behind and start a new chapter that is healthier and more loving. So what's on the cards for 2021? I would want to keep focusing on working more on climate change and personally I am still hoping for myself to have a family one day maybe not 2021 maybe 10 years or so yeah oh well Yogi, thank you so much for sharing everything that you have done with me today it's been really lovely talking to you we're going to do a little bit of a 180 now and I'm going to ask you a few quick fire questions because I'd love you to give some airtime to things that have inspired you recently. So the first question is, what have you read lately that you would like to rave about? The things that I recently read was The Most Good You Can Do. It is a book about effective altruism by Peter Singer. And then something like that is more uh, a fiction is the Rosie Project by Graham Simpson, which... Oh, I've read that one. It's really yeah. sweet, isn't it? It's sweet and very funny. I laughed a lot. Um, and also the book called Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. I learned a lot from that book. Uh, and what about... What have you listened to? Yeah, so I mentioned... Um, Dear Sugars, which uh, now actually ended, but it did really help me the last few years. They have a very uh, nice non-judgmental approach where they read other people's like letters and uh, who are asking for for their advice and listening to other people's stories. You can learn so much, but also the way that then they address those questions and letters is so accepting and and kind and I also really love the mothers of invention um which is a podcast on climate change Uh, it is very funny uh with two women presenters including the former president of Ireland uh, Mary Robinson so I highly recommend that as well if someone is interested in the climate crisis (laughs) that sounds great yeah I'll definitely check that out and my next question is what have you tried recently that you'd like to talk about so I recently started um I joined like a gaming group in one chat to a friend because I realized I do not have enough play and fun um, in my life. And it's really hard to COVID of what kind of groups you can join. So we are playing like board games and different like computer games uh, together. And uh, it really helps me actually to kind of switch up my brain from quite serious topics that I'm actually dealing with every day. I did not expect you to say that. So that is brilliant. (laughs) And okay, my last question then is, um, what have you eaten recently that you'd like to rave about? 
Oh, well, I just came back to London from Hungary. Uh, mm. So I really miss my mom's cooking, uh, which was uh, sour cabbage uh, for New Year's. And also uh, a beer pancakes with uh, filled with minced beef. Um, wow. Yeah, in a paprika, kind of a little bit of a paprika sauce, but it was really lovely. So I still really appreciate good Hungarian food, traditional food. <laughs> oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for this opportunity and, you know, being interested in my story. So I was, I was really glad to be part of this. So thank you, Rachel. And that's it. Our first episode has come to an end. But thank you all so much for tuning in. Both Georgi and Tom have given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure they have you too. Before I go, I want to encourage you to head over to sheleadschange.org where you'll find lots of information on what to expect from the upcoming Lead More course and booking options, along with a special sign-on rate for She Leads Change alumni and those on the Springboard panel. I'll link to all of Georgi's recommendations in the show notes. And I'll see you next month when I'll be discussing self-care, with mindfulness coach Joe Kay and Sheely's Change alumni Somya Mulapadi. See you then.